0: think you hate marketing think again here on the marketing chat podcast i share practical relatable tips to make marketing easy and fun i'm kelly a marketing strategist squarespace website designer and founder of the women podcasters academy i'll be breaking down big ideas into actionable steps so you can get moving with your marketing with way less stress and way more fun Today's episode is brought to you by the Women Podcasters Academy, the Academy features a full course and supportive community to help you start and grow your own podcast. You can find more information at womenpodcastersacademy.com. Welcome. I have a special interview for y'all today. I'm chatting with Todd Eckert, the founder of Tindrum, drum and Todd also happens to be my ex-husband. Todd started his career at age 12 as a music journalist. He later moved into the film industry and produced the award-winning film Control about Ian Curtis, the lead singer of the band Joy Division. He's worked for Technics, a video game developer out of the UK, and Magic Leap, an augmented reality headset device developer. Todd left Magic Leap to found his own company, Tendrum, which creates performance-based content for wearable augmented reality and mixed reality headset devices. Tendrum's first piece was The Life, featuring performance artist Marina Bramovich, premiering at the Serpentine Galleries in London in 2019. Welcome, Todd. I am so glad you're here today.
1: I'm really glad to be here too. Thanks, Kayla.
0: Thank you. So you started out as a music journalist when you were not even a teenager. You were 12. What was that like and how did you get into it, especially at that age?
1: Writing was something that I had always done as kind of a hobby. And I think a lot of that came from uh, admiring so many different authors, not even necessarily the storytelling aspects of writing as the just the elegance with which some authors are able to construct their craft and uh music had always been kind of a like my ultimate vice uh from the time that i was a child four or five years old i was obsessive about understanding everything there was to know about the artists that i admired and that started with Jazz, because my father listened to jazz and it moved to Led Zeppelin, uh, to punk, to all sorts of different kinds of music. But it's always been a process of wanting to to dive into it and understand the artist as fully as possible. It was when I was living in Houston, Texas, that my writing uh, actually began on a professional level. But that was ultimately an extension of uh, the, the obsessive relationship that I had with music. And it was, uh, I would order the, the, the import versions of mm. the records that I liked, and, and specifically the Japanese versions, because they came with, with all sorts of extra stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the, the store where I used to order these albums when I was 12 years old, The guy that I would order them from, he said, you really know a lot about this stuff. Have you ever thought about writing? Uh, And I said, yes. And he introduced me to a friend of his who published a weekly uh, music magazine in Houston called Public News. And they liked what I knew or my approach or something to it. I'm not sure what it was, but they, they wound up publishing me when I was 12.
0: That is wild. My goodness. And when you were a little older than that, you ended up going on tour a few times with some bands, didn't you?
1: Well, it was, uh, it was kind of, uh, at that time, music journalism is very, very different from what it is now. In this completely connected world, the idea that somebody in, New York or Houston or Manila or Lyon uh, would be able to connect with somebody in London or San Francisco and, and get a sense of what a concert was like. It, it, that, that really didn't exist then. And you had journalists who would, uh, who would literally go from town to town on different tours and have a, a sense of, of what the band was like. It, the, the music industry in many ways was a completely different animal at that time. And I was very interested in what was going on in England and and specifically bands like Susie and the Vanshees and Echo and the Bunnymen, this this sort of this, this kind of post-punk thing that was it was happening in the United States, but not to the level that it was happening in England. And so periodically I would uh, uh, be sent by the magazine and would either go to a show or two, or as with the case of the Banshees or the Bunnymen, literally go on several dates with the band that gave you insight that was impossible to otherwise get. and And it showed you the fundamental humanity of the people that were doing this for a living in a way that I think would be much harder to grasp in the kind of hyper-connected world that we live in right now.
0: And isn't that interesting? Because being so connected now, you'd kind of think it would be easier to get that kind of sense of what they do and what's going on
1: you would you would think that but the the fact is that today not only in music but in every facet of human life we are so connected that there is almost no chance for relative anonymity the ability to experience uh uh, something musically something aesthetically something unfamiliar like travel or or a uh, new city new culture whatever it is and react in a way that is absolutely candid
2: mm-hmm.
1: because we are so connected people are incredibly self-aware and that level of self-awareness i think discounts the ability for a lot of human emotion the frailty or uncertainty, even, even ugly things like, uh, uh, being clumsy or being, uh, uh, I don't know, abrupt. Nobody really wants to be that. And so our responses to situations are incredibly measured. So if I'm going on tour with an artist and it's 1985, And I know that I have however many uh, words of copy that I can dedicate. I'm probably not going to talk about something that was meaningless and arbitrary, that was not necessarily a good indication of the entirety of the human being. There's no point where, because there is actually no time between an event and the reporting of that event in today's hyperconnected world there's no reason not to include anything and that mm-hmm. means people tend to lead with that which is most salacious mm-hmm. so i think the, the the realities of the human experience have been whittled down to uh, kind of hyper pronounced uh set of constructs that don't necessarily do justice to what it means to be human so it was a a very different time and going on tour uh presented a snapshot of of extraordinary people making extraordinary music that i don't think is possible to create now
2: Mm.
0: true that makes sense so, how did you end up getting into the film industry?
1: Well, film had always been uh, it had always been a medium that attracted me, but in a way that I think it doesn't necessarily attract a lot of people in uh, certainly not in Texas, but uh, um, maybe even outside of Europe. I've always liked uh, a lot of the the filmmakers that had something. I don't know, iconoclastic like kind of or, or uh, uh, a different way of looking at the world. So not only a Fellini or a Bergman, but a, a Fassbender or a Greenaway or a, a even um, a little known uh, directors like Jean-Jacques Benix or, or what have you. And, um, and it was interesting. I, I wound up uh, moving to Los Angeles, uh, uh, because I lost a bet. And that's a different story and talk about that another time. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I, <laughs> and I wound up, uh, working kind of in the film industry, but, but there was, it was sort of a survival thing. It was not, uh, this was, these were just little roles. And, uh, I had always said at that time that I, I never wanted to produce, uh, a film. Unless it was about something about which I was very, very passionate. And the reason for that was um, I, I met so many people in that initial stint living in L.A. Um, who they were attracted to the industry, uh, but they didn't necessarily have fully formed ideas of what they wanted to say. And fair enough. I mean There's nothing wrong with that. But I didn't want to be one of those people. So uh, I... I said, okay, when I am struck by that story that I absolutely have to tell, then I will try to produce that story. And for the same reasons of what we were talking about earlier, the, uh, the idea that music has always informed uh, so much of how I understand the world, uh, it would make sense that when my friend Orion Williams suggested that we tell the story of Ian Curtis, um, and he he suggested this because he had actually just finished uh, Deddy Curtis's book, Touching from a Distance, Um, that really resonated. And I said, yeah, okay, this, this is the thing that we should try to do. And it took four years, but ultimately we did it.
0: Yeah, and that... That, like you just said, it, it was a lengthy process. Though in the film world, four years isn't that crazy, considering that some other projects take even longer. So this this moved right along. Um, can you tell us a little bit? I think about that's, that?
1: I think that's. A, I think that that's a relative perspective. I mean, four years when you're in the middle of the the third one seems like mm-hmm. forever
0: oh true Um, (laughs) i i do remember uh, (laughs) it's like come on (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) but in in retrospect when when you hear about a movie taking 10 years or 20 years you know um and obviously that's not you know films that take that long aren't being constantly worked on but and and those four years y'all were constantly working on it so yes it it was a long four years
2: (laughs) well it,
1: it it really was, but I mean the other the other part of that
0: is that I think we
1: were comparatively bloody minded about the film that we wanted to make. Yeah. So uh if you if you consider making a story about a real person, then you know often that person can inform the story that you make because they'll have a point of view. Um when it's somebody as polarizing as Ian Curtis. And in the United States, he's less well known than he is um, uh, throughout Europe. But uh, music would actually be very different uh, had Ian not existed. And uh, and so when when you're telling that story, but when you don't wanna make the story about a musician because the music's not enough, you actually want to tell the story of a human being. And when that human being decided to end their own lives Uh, their own life at 23, um, then there is an arc of drama that in some ways you you have to manage. Because if the only story that you're telling is the fact that they killed themselves, then you're not doing justice to the person that they were. And so the entire time that we were making this, we were very, very aware of the fact that Ian was not there to represent himself. And we had to make choices not just that fulfilled um, our, uh, our personal urgency, our sense of ego, our, um, our sense of what was going on in film at the time. But we had to make something that would uh, address and embrace his legacy while telling the authentic story of a human being. That's really hard, Um, even if you consider that you can have 50 people at an event, and all 50 people will remember a slightly different version of that event, and every year that passes, their versions will become increasingly disparate. And in this case, uh, so after Ian killed himself, the rest of the band became New Order. And um, uh, and at the time uh, at the time that we were making the film, New Order uh, had the three surviving members of Joy Division still within the band, uh, Steve, Barney, and Hooky. And you would go to dinner with the three of them, and you would bring up some event that uh, was relatively like the fact that it was relatively well known. Uh, there's a scene in the film where there is a, a riot when um, Ian can't perform because his, his epilepsy is, is keeping him from being able to engage. And, uh, and at this particular dinner, all three of the guys remembered the events of that evening in very different terms. And there is no right and there is no wrong. But yeah. right? if you're going to portray that on film, then you need to speak to as many people as you can yeah. to get a sense of what really happened. It's not just what's the most sensational, right. it's what went down. Yeah. And
2: uh and, what and, then, found, and then you had input said,
0: from Tony Wilson and the director, Anton Corbine, and Ian's widow, Debbie Curtis, and I'm sure other people whom I'm yeah. forgetting. And uh, yeah, oh, it m- must've been but, extremely but- difficult.
1: But if, but if you think about it, though, like anton was the perfect uh, the perfect director because um, he was there
2: mm-hmm. so it
1: wasn't it wasn't theory for him mm-hmm. um, and just like the fifty people in the room, Anton mm-hmm. might have a different vision of events from somebody else, but ultimately, since we were striving. To anchor the experience and authenticity, uh, uh, Anton having at least his version of what the word authentic meant
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, was an incredible asset to the success of the film.
0: And it was successful. It it was nominated for three BAFTAs and won one BAFTA. Didn't it get an honourable? mention or award at yeah no we, we got the award we
1: we opened at can yeah. and uh and it won a certain regard and, oh that's right uh, um and yeah there were there were there were lots of awards yeah um and it's
0: and it's rated it's in the top under, i forget five best music biopics ever by various really sources I, yes i don't know that i knew that oh yeah um yeah well
1: it's you know it's uh it's a long time ago now but i'm 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 still very proud of it yeah
2: yeah
1: and it's funny because like how we approached that film ultimately influenced in some ways predict um everything that i've done since then yes because the um i mean you can i i after that film, I wound up working with uh, a video game developer out of the UK. Um, and that was incredibly important in understanding the, the processes associated with development and, and new technologies, new delivery mechanisms and all sorts of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the authenticity uh, that informed everything that we did with control is, is definitely present in everything that I'm doing, that we're doing with 10 Drum.
0: Yeah. So to move into that, let's briefly talk about your time at Magic Leap and, and what you did hmm. there.
1: Well, Magic Leap was, uh, that was an introduction that basically came from a uh, I don't know a, a circuitous link from tony wilson before he died uh mm-hmm. and um and i was introduced to ronnie Avivitz, the founder of magic leap uh in 2012 10 mm. years ago oh now god and uh, uh and that was really off the back of of control because ronnie was a, a fan of the film uh a fan of joy Division, mm. and um and at the time uh, we had a couple of uh, video calls, and and there was clearly a lot of interest in you know what is this thing that you're talking about? And okay, it's 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 going to be a device, and the device is going to show uh content and the content is going to exist without a screen. What does that really mean? And I was going to uh South Florida for another reason and uh uh and Roni um, who was based there we had a, a meeting and uh we kind of we talked about what all of this meant and it's still this this kind of theoretical exercise and um and then I, I saw it. And and so the first version of this technology was on a a, <laughs> a device called the Beast. It's a footprint <laughs> of like an American refrigerator. So it's yeah. this, this great big thing. And then you go down and you, and you sit your chin down on uh, one of these plastic pieces like you're getting oh, right. yes. you get in an iron engine. Right, yes. And you have these two huge fan-like contraptions that go in front of your eyes. But... At the other side, like five, six feet away from you, there was a robot and the robot's bouncing around. And you're seeing it without a screen. Mm -hmm. And it's this bizarre epiphany because you think, well, I, I had never considered the idea that it was possible to see content without a screen. But then you think, well, why? Um, and I think it, it has to do with the ubiquity of screens, small and mm-hmm. large and, 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 you know, the size of buildings or whatever. Um, and the robot was in there. the
0: room. So not only yeah, was yeah, there exactly. no screen, but it's not virtual reality. So the robot is like appearing That's in right. your space. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and so you have this, this sense of God, why didn't I ever think about it? And um, and then you you it's immediately followed by God. What we can do with this is enormous. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, and you start unraveling some of the preconceptions that we have for whatever it is that we do on a daily basis. So um, when you think about when you think about traditional film. And you think, okay, this is a flat version of the world and it's whatever size it's going to be. But some of the the fundamental elements of how we understand the world around us cannot, by virtue of how this technology works, be included. You say, okay, like what? And, uh, and, And so if you think about how you understand whatever it is that you're looking at right now, it is going to be informed by whatever curiosity you have towards it. So presuming you're not looking at a screen, the screen's not going to do that. So take whatever's in front of you and move your head a tiny little bit to the left or right, and the world will reveal itself to you. And maybe it's interesting, maybe it's not, but if it's interesting, chances are you will focus upon that thing. And this is how we understand each other uh, actually, it's a g- good place to start. so on a human level the the flat version of uh, of a person is an artifact of an event that we're actually not participating in because we understand each other, human beings uh, through uh, this this kind of semiotic reaction where we choose what to look for in another person, and we choose to reveal what we will allow that other person to see. And, and every day, hundreds of times, we are, uh, we are going through this process, and some things are within uh, understood paradigm. So you have your relationship with uh, the person at the dry cleaner, so you have your relationship with the person at the uh, a corner store or maybe you work in a corner store and so you have a relationship with many more people, but you're still going through that kind of exchange. And it's not only one of choosing what to look for and choosing what to reveal, but also it's energetic. And so if you think about everything that you see on a flat screen, it does not include that. But with this technology, The ability to place a dimensional element in the world and by virtue of its dimensional presentation, you understand it differently and your brain works differently in choosing what to look for and choosing how to understand it. But nothing is flat and obvious because everything worth understanding is worth looking more deeply into.
0: That's great. So jumping ahead a tiny bit, and I'll just sum up real quick. Um, so you worked at Magic Leap for, I think it was about four years. You left to start Tendrum. And I love what you just said about, you. I think you used the word participating. And while Tendrum creates performance-based content, the... It's not, I mean, I'll say audience, but it's not a traditional audience because the people put on an AR, MR headset device and they do participate or interact with your content. So could you explain that giving the example of Marina's piece, The Life?
1: So, The the Life was actually the first mixed reality, mixed reality wearable augmented reality um, uh, event that the public could get a ticket to. Um, and in this case, it's 2019. We started at the Serpentine Galleries in London because Hanselrich Obrist, uh, who's the creative director at the Serpentine, um, has actually been a friend for years. and. Uh, he uh he he loves new technologies he know he loves new ways of looking at the world and at one of his very famous six in the morning breakfasts, we were sitting around talking about what was possible years before this, and he said that he felt it was absolutely urgent that the serpentine be the first place where this exhibited mm. um at the time uh I didn't even know marina, so it was uh it was it was funny because she actually had a, a history with five to 12 hours and then uh, uh, some other work at the certain time. So that was a, a kind of happy accident, but the the piece itself um, is a natural extension of the limitation of performance art. And again, you say, so sort of like, well, what does that mean? Um, historically performance art is um, uh, it's, it is an expression of the human form as the the energetic host or the the basis of the experience itself. So, if you think about most uh, museums, or art galleries, there is generally something on a wall or something on a screen, and uh, and you go in and you look at it. Even if it's an installation, um, you are it, it is there and you can look at it for as long or uh, as, as long as the, the terms of your visit um, allow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the human being, um, you've always had to be there at the specific time of the performance. Mm-hmm. So um, even with 512 hours, which as the name suggests, she performed for 512 hours or um, for uh, Marina's best-known piece is The Artist's Present, uh, which set the attendance record at the Museum of Modern Art in New York um, of 850,000 people over three months. And uh, uh, But it doesn't really matter because if you were not there when she was performing this piece, then you would not know what it felt like. And people would obviously Answer with yeah, but there's probably a film of it and there is
2: mm-hmm. but
1: That film is not the performance that mm-hmm. film is an artifact of an event. That's already passed
2: mm-hmm.
1: So what we did when we were approaching the idea of performance art with Marina Who's the, the most legendary living performance artist was the idea that you could create something that would be It would be relevant to her body of work, to her as an artist, but it would transcend the time limitations that have historically dictated her relationship with her audience. So we we started off with a process of volumetric capture. Now that's that's a, a kind of loaded sounding term. Uh, volumetric capture is uh, is a variation on film. So traditional film is one camera, uh, if it's a traditional 3D film, it's, it's two cameras with two depth planes. Um, volumetric means that you have a camera array. In the case of Marina's performance, 32 cameras. Mm. And the 32 cameras are pointed inwards and you have a capture circle. And that capture circle is essentially the, um, the performance space where the entirety of the human form will be captured so that means every nuance of the shape of the human being with a photographic mesh all the way around that shape so when viewed through a wearable augmented reality device and again you were you were quite quite right to bring up this is not um vr what we do is is not a closed experience but rather it's a shared experience and the content is in the world, so this looks like the entirety of Marina's form in the world. And so we we recorded this uh, at a studio called Forty Views in Grenoble, in France, and uh, and presented in the gallery of the Serpentine. So the the main gallery is. Uh, uh, essentially the square room. And we had a circle in the middle of it with stanchions around it. And the, uh, the audience, uh, was fitted with devices, uh, a couple at a time and led into the room where the performance was initiated. And so Marina, um, when viewed through the device is performing in the center of that room. For as large an audience as ever gathered. I think we maxed out at 45 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the process is not one of looking at an artifact of something that already happened, but rather <clears throat> at viewing a performance that energetically feels as if it is happening in real time. And yeah.
2: that's
1: kind of the the determining or the, the differentiating uh, yeah. feature of the experience.
0: Yeah. And so people understand, let me clarify that this isn't like a 3d movie where everyone has the same view at the same time. You know, it's not like this fish is coming out at everyone with the same perspective. If I'm standing here, I may see the front of Marina. And if you're standing opposite me, you're going to see her back. And if you're standing a foot to my right, you're going to see a slightly different perspective. So like you were just having us do a moment ago, turning our heads slightly to the left or right, that's exactly what's going on in all of your content. If you move a little bit, the, the content, the performer, or, or whatever you're looking at stays where it is. You're the one moving. Did I explain that correctly?
1: Well, you did. There's, there's one distinction because it's all ultimately a function of programming.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the, the Serpentine version of the life uh, had people that were allowed to go wherever they wanted. So mm-hmm. they would bunch up kind of based upon whatever direction she was facing. So mm-hmm. you could start um, at one part of the room and wind up on the other side of the room and you could, just, you could wander wherever you wanted. Yeah, very I much did. as if she was <laughs> right, very much as if she was por- performing in the center of the room. Um, however, uh, once COVID became a part of all of our lives, um, we had to create a presentation scenario that allowed for social distancing. Mm. So, how would you do that, given that human nature would bunch up? Mm-hmm. Um, at the point where they had the most interesting view, so for that presentation of the piece and subsequent presentations um in other parts of England and in Germany, um we would orient Marina differently. so the uh, the performance was at the same stage for every viewer. But the orientation of Marina was slightly different to maintain social distancing in the room,
2: mm, and what we
1: found was it still felt like a collective experience, mm-hmm. but um, it allowed the audience to stay safe nice. and and that was very telling for us and mm-hmm. so for some of the work that we have right now, um, including one piece that uh, uh, features a grand piano, um, the orientation of initiation will actually be, uh, uh, it will be altered depending upon where in the room you are, but, mm. uh, that's something I can talk about after we announce
0: the fact of that show. Mm. Nice. So let me back up one sec, because I skipped over this because of the flow of the conversation. But what is your vision for Tendrum? Like um, to put out in the world.
1: My vision, I think, is to, to have a a deeper association with great artists. And 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 the word artist is in, in many ways it's kind of loaded. But if you think about it, um, the uh, the underlying art of any human being that is attempting to to elevate the um, our understanding of human condition, that can come in so many different ways. It can come through uh, musical performance, It can come through narratives, storytelling. It can come through oration. It can come through architecture. It can come through dance. It can come through fashion. Um, there are all sorts of ways to to present what human beings do that makes us great.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that um, that my hope is that we are able to tap into. Uh, uh, a kind of universal vein of human beauty, Mm -hmm. of brilliance um, in a way that frees us from the shackle of just watching and instead allows us to become active participants and our understanding of the stories or performances that define our lives. So if you think of any traditionally recorded medium, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not uh, uh, speaking ill of existing uh, traditional media because I, I, I don't feel that way. I don't have any negative uh, feelings against anything. But the, but if you think of anything that you have watched in a traditional presentation, um, and you think of, okay, what would it be like if, as those two characters were falling in love or struggling or, um, contemplating the nature of existence or whatever. If you were able to look at them not as that artifact of something that already happened, but instead as something happening in front of you right now,
2: Mm. would it
1: be better? And I would argue that uh, um, it should be. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do.
0: Mm. That's beautiful. So you already premiered another. Piece called Medusa that was architecture based, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was at the Victoria and Albert Museum, uh, also in London. It's funny, we're not based in London, but we, we do a lot there. <laughs> um, uh, the um, that piece came out of a discussion with uh, Ben Evans, London Design Festival, years ago. Um, and we had met at an event and and started talking about music just like always Mm. and uh and got on to architecture and design and and the contemplation of well what would happen if architecture was a a conceptual experience as opposed to um something anchored in uh the idea of um shelter or uh safety or barrier or whatever it is that, that architecture normally represents. What if it was design at scale? What would you do with it? And, uh, and we were kicking it around for a while and we were talking to a couple of architects and COVID happened. And, and so it was dormant for a little while. And uh, at the beginning of last year, uh, Ben uh Called me up and he said, uh, "I actually think London is going to reopen in the fall." And I said, "I think you're high." And he said, "No, no, seriously, I think it's <laughs> going to." And uh, um, and I would uh, I would be really interested in in taking this concept and having it be the the lead piece for the festival this year. Mm. And, and that was an incredibly ambitious thing to do because we didn't even know what it end. Mm. And uh, Yaya Monk, who is a, a scientist and uh, a principal member of Tendron, really embraced it. Mm. And uh, and we wound up um, working with an architect named Sufujimura, who interestingly also has a connection to the serpentine, although that had nothing to do with our selection. Uh, and it became an exercise in uh, a sort of generative presentation about what the term architecture means. And uh it is uh it's a piece that 50 people simultaneously enter. And uh the the Raphael Court in the Victoria and Albert Museum is one of the beautiful rooms of the world. Uh, the Raphael cartoons are housed in that room, and um very long and very tall and and cathedral-like and uh and so we were presenting this piece while uh uh, other people would simultaneously be walking through looking at the art Mm -hmm. and um and it was really interesting because that that created uh this kind of blended situation that you would have 100 200 people in the room at a time Mm -hmm. and 50 of them would be looking at this building and the building is undulating and it, it um it represents this kind of connection between um an aurora polaris and uh that uh, uh the life which exists far below the surface of um in in oceans, and uh reflected the kind of uh a continuity of bioluminescence and, and um, but it changes every single time you're in it because you're always in a different group of 50 people. Mm. And, uh, and if 50 people can, can exhibit a kind of collective curiosity,
2: Mm. the
1: building is curious about what they're curious about.
2: Mm. And,
1: uh, and so it's always surprising. It's always different. And, uh, and that piece will actually be um, exhibiting again later this year, uh, uh, which is, I, I think it will actually have uh, a, a very long exhibition life because it's just, I mean, it's not like anything else, but it's also kind of delightful.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. Very cool. And do you announce the shows on your website so people can... Yeah. Like, okay, cool. So people can go to 10 drum, 10 to get information on upcoming shows. Can you give us That's a right. sneak peek on anything you're working on? So not yet.
1: <laughs> well, no, I I really, really hard. Like control, our work takes a long time to make. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that there is an artist uh again a musician whose work through piano through composition um in many ways defined how i understand the world and um we managed to volumetrically capture him playing a grand piano which was something that nobody had ever done before wow um in december of 2020 And that piece will premiere uh beginning of next year. Wow. And I have to wait until we've officially announced it but it'll premiere in New York and um not finally
0: something in the States. And, yeah, something different.
1: And um honestly I I am thrilled by the fact of it and terrified by the scope of it, despite the fact that I, I am directing the piece and it's, um, the scope reflects exactly what I want it to be. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I'll update the show notes and the post on my website when you have officially made the announcement to reflect what it is. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. This is awesome.
2: I really appreciate it.
0: Certainly. So again, y'all can go to tendrum.io and um, check out what's coming up in the future. And I will update stuff on this post on the website link in the show notes. So I will be back um, in a few days with another episode. So thanks for being here and see you next time on the Marketing Chat Podcast.